Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast. <laughs> that wasn't good at all. Man. I'm Aaron Porter here with our friend Justin Schwinn filling in for the Nate Larkin. Thanks, How you doing, Justin? I'm doing good, man. It's uh, Saturday and uh, it's nice and cool here in northern New Mexico. And you went to the park just a little while ago? Yeah, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. So there's always a point in the day where they have to get their wiggles out. And so we got them out in the park and they got their wiggles out. And now they're eating lunch and going to take their nap. Oh, man, nap time. That's so great. <laughs> so great. I was just talking with a person recently, and and I had I had forgotten all of the times I would be driving home from places trying to keep kids awake in the back seat while trying to drive safely because for some reason, when the kids miss their nap, you'd think, oh, but they'll go to bed early later because they'll be so tired. Nope. Usually they're so wiped out that they're just tantrumy and go to bed later. Oh my gosh. Nap times. Slave to nap times. You're in the thick of it. Uh, yes. Yes. And I don't, I, I tell you right now though, it, it does give you a break in the day of, I guess, little to no chaos. So that, that part is really good. It is true. Well, we've got a great interview coming up, but I want to reach in the mailbag first and talk about something that one of our female listeners wrote to us. Uh, and so I want to get your thoughts on it. We'll talk about it. Our friend wrote, hi, I was listening to the above episode with Kat uh, and wanted to give some thoughts about her talk when she said that if the addict had confessed before marriage, we wouldn't be married to them. I had a little bit of resistance to that. In my story, Engaged to the Addict, I actually knew that he was using porn most uh, most all of our eight-year relationship, but he was minimizing and denying. So with me not knowing what I know now, I didn't run for the hills. So maybe that statement would be true for me now, but I wanted to give my thoughts about this. I do agree and identify with everything else, and so I appreciate all of your work in this field. Thank you. So we've got our friend talking about, oh, man, I I knew, but I didn't know. And I thought that was a really interesting and important part, I think, of a, a lot of people's uh, relationships. I mean, there are many engaged folks that don't know anything about their partner's addiction. And then there are some that think they know, but my word, many years of marriage can, can change what we think we knew. And in fact, I think can make it harder because we think we know what's going on. But when we're young and inexperienced, don't know what it's like to be in marriage, don't realize anything about addiction other than here's this person who's admitting to this stuff. So I feel safe, like it creates a sense of safety. But then later finding out, oh my gosh, this is so much more complicated than I thought. What are your thoughts here in that letter? Uh, you know, I, I, I think there's a sense of maturity that happens with 
life lessons and uh, um, life experiences and in that maturity. We think we're mature. We think we're ready and we're not. And our, our reactions are based on emotions. Our reactions are based on our own wounds. And I, I really believe that walking through the fire, not just as the uh, addict, but as the uh, partner, is uh it's definitely a very challenging um very um humbling experience in many ways um and i also think that especially speaking from an addict's perspective um as much as i gaslighted my wife uh early on in in this whole recovery uh process um it, it takes a lot for uh the other side just to uh, be willing to just even just stay there and be present when their whole entire life is crashed down upon them. So um, it's it's just I just hear I'm I'm a lot more mature um, where I am is what I'm hearing from that uh, listener, and in that I've I've learned I have life learned lessons. Um, obviously, I have a lot more uh, of understanding of what is safe and what is not safe, uh, what is trust, what I can trust and what I can't trust. And, um, you know, it just all of this takes time and 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 definitely leaning in um, and there is no guarantees uh, except for uh, looking out for your own safety and your own well-being. There's another letter that uh, we're we're going to do another opening uh, for a podcast coming up here, and I'm excited to get to that and and these have a bit of an overlap, which is we can hear someone's story that says, Mm -hmm. Oh, I found out they were an addict. So I said, no, I won't be in a relationship with you. Mm -hmm. That's not right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And this person saying, I might not have made the same choice if I had understood what I did years later. Mm -hmm. Then there are people that could say, I understood everything and chose to walk through that fire with this person. None of those are right or wrong. There are a lot of decisions we make. And, and frankly, I mean, what do I know? I was married when I was 19 and I'm, I'm baffled by looking back and thinking about how much I thought I knew at 19 when people were trying to, Trying to give me wisdom, I just push that off. Okay, should should I tell my most embarrassing story of my engagement time? Why not? That's what this podcast is for. Let's Good go. lord! I okay. <laughs> so this was a recent revelation. Um, uh, soon after my my wife had left a couple of years ago, I thought back on a story when we were engaged. And I was living in Los Angeles at the time. I was doing martial arts and boxing six days a week. And uh, my dad had worked with a fellow named Richard Steele back when he was uh, a, a gym teacher in Watts back in the late 60s, early 70s. Richard went on to become a boxing referee through the 80s that was like him, Mitch Halpern, and Mills Lane that did all the like Mike Tyson, De La Hoya fights. Any giant fight was mostly those three guys. And I'd grown up watching slides. My dad had hundreds of slide carousels that we bring out. And he had slides of that time when he was a teacher in Watts. And 
he and Richard and my mom and his wife at that time would go camping. And so I grew up watching this and he was a welterweight boxer at the time. And they had lost touch over the years once my dad moved away from Los Angeles. And then one day I was at a person's house and on the cover of Sports Illustrated, it said Man of Steel and had this picture of this dude. And I was like, what? I think that's my dad's old friend from like the 60s. So I read it and neither he nor my dad were Christians at the time. And it's like, he's a minister now. He runs a gym in Las Vegas. So I call my dad and say, let's do a road trip. Let's go find your buddy. And I'm thinking like, I want to go check out his gym. I was doing boxing at the time. So my dad's like, sure. So he drives down to Los Angeles. We jump in the car from there, head to Las Vegas, and we find his old buddy. And he's an intense dude. Like he's got this gravelly, gravelly voice and just, he's, he's intense. He's a boxing referee. He's got to be able to, you know, keep control of the gym. And so we're sitting in his office after I had done a workout, we had hung out, and now we're sitting in his office, and my dad mentions that I'm engaged. And I might have been 18, but I, uh, yeah, could have been 18, early 19. And Richard looks at me and, and tells me I'm too young to get married. He says, you don't even know who you are. She doesn't know who she is. In 10 years, you might find out that you're not at all the people you think you are now, and and you know, this is just, you're too young. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the embarrassing part. I look across the desk at this man who had experienced marriage and divorce and was older and wiser than me. And I say this, Richard, I remember using his, uh, you know, whatever, calling Mr. <laughs> Steele would have been weird. But anyways, I said, Richard, you're a Christian, right? obviously knew he was they had pictures in the sports illustrated of him like preaching he's like yes i'm like so we're disciples of christ and scripture affirms that as disciples of christ we're being transformed into the image of christ as we become more mature in our faith which means in 10 years from now i will be more like christ she will be more like christ we will be more like each other in that moment than we even are now I don't remember what else I said, but that was the gist of it. And he said nothing. And we just changed (laughs) subjects. And I kid you not, for a quarter century, I thought I won that conversation. I stumped the old man. I knew better than he did. As of a couple years ago, I was talking to my mom about that uh, interaction with Mr. Steele, the man of steel. And it was the first time in 25 years it occurred to me that I had not won the conversation. He literally heard me and thought, I'm not going to engage this idiot in any more of this conversation. (laughs) He's not listening to me. Find out for yourself is what he basically said. Hey, that's a very generous version of it. Maybe that's what he was thinking. If I was on the other side of the table, I'd be like, well, screw you. Go do what you're going to do, kid. (laughs) You are going to find out for yourself. Uh, but man, when I, when I read a letter like this or talk to people that, that go back, don't we all realize as we become more experienced and wiser, the amount of red flags that were present Mm. and that were graciously given to us by other people Mm -hmm. that we were too young, 
dumb or like myself, arrogant to receive. And that's okay too. That doesn't mean it was a mistake. This just ends up being our, our journey. This is our life. And so we're going to walk through this. And even if we were with someone else that wasn't an addict at the time, we'd walk through a different type of fire. We'd walk through a different kind of journey and that's okay. Yeah, I, 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 I completely agree. And on top of that, I think that you think you know somebody or you two think you know somebody, but you really don't. I mean, obviously, if marriages last or they don't last or whatever comes of the path of the marriage of, of these these individuals or even in my life, it it takes time to fully know somebody. You know, I, I've read books where they say, you know, you – if your marriage does last into your fifties, that's the best. That's when you really start to enrich your marriage because at that point in time, uh, if you did have kids, they're out of the house. Um, if you did have, uh, uh, these goals and aspirations of, of life of career or what, whatsoever, they've also, uh, not set sail, but you've achieved them or not or given up or whatsoever. And you and your partner, uh, just value each other. Uh, so much more because all the things that you're trying to push for in life have you've settled on that, and now the the intimacy of of your marriage is just being with each other. Um, I'm not even close to that yet. Um, oh, still, shut up, shut but, up. But but I, <laughs> but but I, I I can tell you that I look forward to that piece in my life where uh, I have passed that that season of of children and. And it's just my wife and I were the empty nesters or however you want to state that uh, uh, claim. And we can just value each other every day for who we are and know but, and know each other too fully for who we are. Right. But even even with that, again, and I think this comes back to when listeners are listening to any of the guests and thinking like, okay, this is prescriptive or descriptive often they're describing describing their experience and there's good things to learn in that it's not always prescriptive because it's their story it's their experience and so even that empty nest moment oh my word how many people have i talked to that when they hit that moment they were fine as a couple because they had the kids as that focal point of we're running around, we're dropping them off, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're going to school events. And then they get to the point where they no longer have that and they have to rediscover themselves, which can either be a beautiful magical time or it can be like, I didn't think we had problems and now we're facing problems and I don't even know who we are anymore. And again, it's so different for each couple. And that shouldn't be scary for people coming up to that because you don't know you know, how it's going to go. You can certainly be cultivating the, let's make sure we're, (laughs) we're, we're sticking with knowing each other more and more each year. So that when the kids leave, it's not like we haven't cultivated that. And now we're just stuck with a person going, Oh wait, I didn't even know this who is who you become the last 20, 25 years. And that's crazy. But I think, uh, and, and we'll talk about it more in, in an upcoming, uh, upcoming or upcoming, we can cup it. Uh, that just made me uncomfortable. Uh, upcoming episode, we'll talk a little bit more about this from a, from a whole different perspective of, of one of our listeners that wrote in. But I think with all of these 
conversations we have with different guests, be careful to not think that everything that they say is descriptive for you. Right. This is your story, and and it's got different hard parts. It's got different glorious parts, and we're just we're just gleaning and being curious about other people's stories. But thank you, listener, for writing in. Uh, so good, and we are going to jump off now into a conversation with Dwayne Osterland when we come back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Today, coming from Long Beach, California. Oh, it sounds like there's a fight. You're going to be entering the ring here. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It sounds like it. Oh, my goodness. Dwayne Osterlin from the Addicted Mind Podcast, licensed marriage family therapist, and certified sexual addiction therapist. Welcome to the family. Well, uh, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to have our conversation and see where we're going to go. Me too, but I know where I want to start. You, I had my mic like sitting behind me. I was just talking to I, you. Could saw, you. Could you even hear me during that time? I, no, you sounded pretty good. You sound much better now. Oh, good. It's been one of those mornings. I mean, at what point do you do a podcast and you're like, eh, I'll just put my mic somewhere in the room. It'll be fine. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I know. Uh, trust me, I've had those mornings as well, so I get it, it. It feels like Monday, but you mentioned that you spent some time growing up in Africa. I want to hear about that first, and somehow you can segue that to how you came to all of these addiction and relationship kind of vocational choices. Maybe they tie in, maybe they don't, but start in the, Africa for uh, I think they probably tie in a little bit. Um, yeah, no, I... I uh, my my father was in the in the oil industry and the refinery industry back in the 70s and and so he was a civil engineer so he was moving to different places all over the world building refineries back in the oil boom and um one place we ended up was south africa in okay. a little town called sukunda uh outside of johannesburg about two two hours outside of johannesburg how and old were you at this point I was about five when we moved there. And did you go straight from Texas to South Africa? Yes, went right uh, from Texas to, to South Africa, and um, and that was a completely different world, obviously. Well, yeah. And and at that time, we're talking in the seventies. Yeah, it was. We lived there during apartheid. Yeah, and segregation and all of that. So. Um, yeah, there's a lot there in, in in that experience, and then I left when I was about eleven. So, wow, so that's about a six six that's, years. That's a significant and formative chunk of time. Yeah, absolutely. So how <laughs> absolutely. how aware were you of these differences, both racially, but it wasn't just black and white; it was also British and German people yeah. and their feelings towards each other from the Boer Wars. I'm glad you even mentioned that too. So coming in, into there, there, there's definitely, you know, at five years old, you're, you're not really understanding the context of these things and you're just really surviving, I guess, you know, in a way you're just living your life and you're doing your things and, and you don't really understand it, but it's definitely present there everywhere. And so everything was segregated. You know, we lived in, in, there, there was white and black, and and those did not mix 
um, unless it was in certain parameters, you know, work or something like that. But like I went to a school and it was completely segregated school. It was all white school at the same time, like what you were talking about, you know, um, as we went over there, you know, um, I was, I was an American and I went to a British school mm-hmm. and so we hung out with the, the Brits and the Afrikaners didn't like us either. So there was an, a lot of animosity there. So you go into this culture where there's all this segregation, and then, and then as as an American, you're you're you know you're not you're not liked, or they didn't you know. I remember going to my mom, and and some kid said to me, he said he called me a redneck, you know, some Afrikaner, and I I didn't know what that meant. I didn't understand that context. I'm like, what what is he talking about? I don't get this. Like, why is he saying that to me? And, um, it was just interesting. So it's, uh, it was an interesting dynamic to grow up in. And in some ways, you know, growing up in South Africa was, was amazing because, um, there was so much, uh, for me as a white person, I would say, you know, there was so much freedom as a kid to go out and explore everything. And Mm -hmm. there was no such thing as television or, uh, any kind of electronics back in the day at all. Like we didn't even have a television. You, you couldn't get in any of that. So, um, I remember maybe in the last year we got a, a television set and it was on for two hours a day. And the first half was, was in Afrikaans. And then the second half was in English. And I, and I remember, this is a craziness. It was, they were showing Dallas that show Dallas. Yeah. You remember Dallas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I couldn't watch that it, one. but I remember it. Yeah. But you remember that was what yeah. they showed once in Afrikaans and then once in English. And that was it. That was, so I didn't really watch that. And, you know, it was, it was, well, hey, but anyway. at, at least they had some context for what they believe Texas was like. Cause I assume yeah. Dallas <laughs> took place right. in Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, so take yeah. me from there. Where did you go next? You're 11 years old and you moved back to the States or did you go? Yeah, we else? moved back to Texas and we uh, moved to Houston and that was its own culture shock because I came from South Africa where it was very, very strict. I mean, British schools, very strict, a lot of corporal punishment and a lot of uh, physical, uh, you know, violence, <laughs> the way they would motivate kids. I mean, it was it was normal for them to, you know, uh, if, you, if you didn't get, I, I just remember I was in Afrikaners class and we had, we were learning Afrikaans and I, I you know, I'm, I'm a horrible speller. I can't even spell in English. And the way they decided to motivate kids was if, if you got, for every word wrong you got on your, your your test, you you got you got racked on the knuckles with a with a ruler, and of course, you know I was I was the one who maybe got three right, so wow. you know they march you up and they, they and, and you know it, it didn't really work. By the way, I still don't. So I strangely, spell. That, that didn't change <laughs> that didn't your, your brain makeup for what you were good at because you were right. with a ruler. Huh. Yeah, so I know. Weird. I'll yeah, take a note on that. Yeah, ineffective. It didn't, yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> But this was, you know, and and it was so it was very very strict. So I remember coming back to the United States and going into to schools there, and then it was it was so different, right? It was so structured, and I was maybe like ten or eleven at the time, and it was just kind of this weird world. And I I remember, you know, uh, I think I got the award for the the best citizenship award because I was so terrified. I mean, you 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 say yes, ma'am, yes, sir to anybody you know uh you you do not 
misbehave in these other schools because the consequences were, you know, quite a bit different. So I come back to the United States and I'm just, I'm just this, you know, inline kind of kid that, um, you know, keep that structure there and everything. And it was kind of crazy. And then it was just culture shock because the schools and the dynamics were so different. Like it was like, I, you know, trying to fit in, it's like, this is so like, um, there's not that structure there. And it's, it's, so as a kid, you're, you're trying to navigate this new social network and that in and of itself, is its own kind of stress. And, yeah. well, um, I was going to say, you're, you're coming back at a time, what it probably was fifth or sixth grade. Yeah. Yeah. So you're coming into a place where relationships have been established. You're in one room with the same kids and you're Mr. Goody two shoes who obeys yeah. all the rules, which can't be helpful. out of fear. <laughs> yeah. That's no good. You got to be at least a little rebel to make a friend from time to time. So, well, did, that comes out later, you know. <laughs> so, so tell me about that transition. Did you find some good friends and fit in, or did you feel isolated? Um, you know, for, well, the story goes, what was really interesting is that, you know, I, I found some people that I, I could connect with, and I had some really good little core friends that, um, you know, we we're kind of nerdy, and and uh, and and uh, we, we fit together. But there was a lot of... Uh, social angst i would say for me like i didn't really kind of fit i had a hard time um connecting with others out there in this social network i always kind of felt on the outside and so after well what happened what was interesting is that after a while there then we we moved up to canada in saskatchewan which is uh you know um not 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 a ton up there no, but and, that and, this time and, was and, later in high school. And weather-wise, it's the exact same as South Africa and Texas. I got to assume. Yeah, I've never been to Saskatchewan, <laughs> but I, I assume it's very similar. Yeah, fr- freezing, freezing cold in the winter and, and pretty warm in the in the summer. Short days, long days, uh, you know, in the summer. So that was kind of crazy. But then going there, that's really where I, I found um, alcohol. And that really, really did it for me. Um, in that moment and, uh, found a way to, oh, I was probably, how old was I? I was probably like 16. And, and what was the cause that even drove you to try that? Was it a social thing or? I think it was just a social, social thing, you know? And, uh, I think at the time the drinking age up there was like 19 and it's more, a little more part of the culture in there. Uh, what, what kids do and going to parties and, and doing that, and I found that, and I found that wow, this 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 really took away a lot of that stress and anxiety. Um, and you know, I was able to connect with connect. You know, right. I say that with a you know um, not really connect, but you know, it takes away that social anxiety, and then right. I could kind of fit in, and I could and I could feel like a, a part of the of the group. And then I had this kind of start over, and it in some ways it was really positive in that I got this experience to be now on the other side of that, where here I was in a smaller community where I could fit in and I could feel like I was part of this group and, um, and alcohol was helped with that for a while anyway. Right. And when did it stop being helpful? When did it stop? Well, I, you know, I, I kind of say I was, I was, I was a lucky one because, um, you know, through that time too, as that started to mount, you know, I really started to struggle with depression, 
and anxiety and alcohol became my primary of coping. And luckily mm -hmm. enough, I had a, a, a friend who helped me get support. Eventually I went to, cause at this point I was, I was drinking, you know, every week, binge drinking, you know, I don't even know how much, you don't even remember what you do, mm -hmm. you know, and then, you know, doing really crazy, you know, driving drunk, driving, you know, just doing really bad thing. I, I feel really lucky that I didn't, it could have gotten a lot worse. Mm -hmm. And, um, luckily I had a friend who was getting into recovery. He was a drinking buddy at the time, I guess I would call it. And I was really struggling with a lot of depression and anxiety. And he took me to see one of the counselors at the school. And then that kind of cascaded into getting some support. And luckily enough, I had enough supportive of people around me to get help. And I went into, in that town, they had a little rehab that hmm. I went to. How old so here I'm a seven, I was 17 at this point. Wow. So you're still in high school. I'm still in high school, but you know, I, I was in a lot of pain. I was, I was, I was really hurting. And I, I think through the, you know, it's kind of, everything just kind of catches up and you're at that age and I didn't know how to cope and I didn't have the coping skills. And so in a way I felt, I felt really lucky because I got the support and I got out of that environment before that turned into what I would call like a full-fledged addiction, mm -hmm. right? I was definitely heading that direction. And I always kind of feel I'm always wary of my personality that kind of has that addictive side to it. Mm -hmm. But I was lucky enough that I feel that I was able to get enough support and get away from it long enough that I didn't go all that road. But I, I have enough experience to understand it. And I think that goes into why I have mm -hmm. an, an attachment to this work. Okay, before um, we go to that, though, you're talking about a 17-year-old that's in so much pain that he's feeling like he needs to self-medicate regularly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's easy to look at a high schooler and be like, that's just part of adolescence. But what was behind yeah. that pain that you were feeling? Like, where where did that come from in your life? You know, I, I think um, one of the things that for me is not not having the support the emotional support that i needed from my caretakers around me from my mom and dad in some ways they were there very much you know and they would get me the support but that emotional component for me wasn't there so i always felt really on my own alone in this and so i didn't know how to cope i didn't have a space to go i didn't have a place to to do it. And, and I really felt like I was on my own. So it kind of like an abandonment. And I don't think mm -hmm. in any way my parents did that in, per, in, in any kind of purposeful way, mm -hmm. but they were also younger parents. I mean, you know, they were, when they had us, they were 23. They didn't have the emotional maturity. They're moving to all these places. I see that now as, as a parent myself and an mm -hmm. older parent. You know, that, I mean, I imagine myself at 23 and having kids and I'm gonna be like, how do you do this? <laughs> right. I don't have the emotional maturity to do that. So, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, to, to beat them up, but as a kid, my experience right. was feeling alone and abandoned and by myself emotionally. And so when I'm going through these traumas and these different culture shifts and different stressors, I didn't really feel like I had anybody there that could protect me and I was on my own. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe my personality too was to kind of keep that on my own and not share that. 
And so I didn't know how to reach out. But once I did reach out in that way with that counselor that day, um, they were able to come to my aid, but they couldn't hear it until that moment, I guess. And um, yeah, I feel really luck. I feel really blessed that I got that lucky because um, yeah, I think of kids today and the opioid crisis and, you know, I, I would have done that. I, I know I would have. And I, yeah. I just feel like, oh man, I, I oh, wow, yeah. oh. I, I was lucky. And then, oh. and then it got my, you know, through that age of your brain changing from 17 to, you know, 25, you know, I wasn't in, in that stuff. So I, I was able to get, my brain was able to grow without that substance in it. And I was able to get some skills that helped me cope with some of these things and kind of get out of it. And that's where I feel I was lucky. Otherwise, I don't know where I'd be. I really, I don't trust myself enough to, <laughs> to say, you know, I kind of feel yeah. it in my bones. I don't know if that makes sense. So, I mean, it's, it's easy to, it, perhaps too easy to make the connection between what you really needed with someone to actively listen to you and listen to you well and draw you out with good questions. And then yeah. at some point you decide I'm going to become a, a therapist. Were those yeah, well, that in your mind at all? No, no, okay. that, that didn't come till later. I mean, being a therapist came later in life. You know, I think some of our traumas don't present themselves till later in our life as we get older and we go through things. So, you know, I got through that and then I, I um, went in and I, I worked in the film industry for a while in LA. I was a camera assistant and I did that for like 10 years working on commercials and all sorts of stuff and um, really just wasn't happy. Didn't really enjoy the work. Didn't really like it. I thought it was something else and it was, it was just didn't really fit me. And I was working on a set one time. I think it was a music video. I can't remember what it was. And I, I broke my leg. I tripped over some cable that they had laid for some lights and I broke my ankle and I, I, I went into disability. I got disability cause they, you know, they had disability insurance for the work and everything. And I had, I think I had like six weeks of disability to, to heal and then go back to work. And, you know, I was a pretty motivated person. And, and I remember, you know, I said, well, it's the middle of summer. Maybe I'll take a class. I can't, I don't want to just sit around for, Mm-hmm. six weeks and do nothing. And, and, and I knew I wasn't really happy in what I was doing. I, it didn't really like resonate with me. And I remember I met with this, his, his name was Vince and he was the Dean at the um, department, the psychology department at Cal state long beach. And I just met with, I just, I just showed up and met with him and he sat with me for an hour and talked to me. And he said, you know, I think you would really, you would be good at this. You know, and I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, all right. And he goes, look, I have a class. It's starting this weekend. It's starting Saturday. It was like Monday when I saw him, right? And he goes, I'll let you in. And I'm like, all right, I'll get back to you. Let me think about it, you know? And I went and I said, well, it's it's six weeks. I have six weeks of disability. It's a class. I mean, why not? I'll take it. So I took it and I just really kind of fell in love with the work and I think, you know, when I look back, I don't, I don't think we get into this profession because we're all healthy. I mean, I think part of it is like, we're looking for some of our own journey and some of it started mm-hmm. to speak to me. Yeah. And, um, and I just, I fell in love with it there and, and then I started to do it. And then I had to make this transition of, 
am I going to do this all the time? Am I going to, you know, am I going to work here or not? And so I, I, that took about a year to do (laughs) that decision. But eventually I realized like, especially when I was working like freelance in the, in the film industry, if you're not work, if you're not taking work, you're going to lose work. Right. And so they started to stop calling me because, you know, they replaced me. I couldn't do that job because I had a class or I had to do something. And slowly they replaced me. And then, um, I, I I realized like, okay, I'm just going to go this direction. And I, I love it. I love being in the helping profession. I, 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 I think of, I guess, I think of that kid who didn't have a voice, didn't have a voice, and and wasn't heard, and wasn't uh, seen in in a way, in in his pain, um, and that no one was inviting him into speaking. Absolutely, yeah, to speak about it. That I I have a passion to give people that voice, mm-hmm. no matter how they're, you know, I would say, no matter how small they think their pain is you know if that makes sense Mm -hmm. um because you know you could look at me and and you know i could say well look at this this kid he's 17 he's you know um he's he's middle class he's got everything that he needs he's got you know he's got all the privilege in the world yet i was still in pain and right no one no one could well at least i thought no one could see it yeah, or I was alone. Well, and that's in it. and and that's a that's a hard thing because you're talking about an objective reality of here's your privilege, mm-hmm. which to acknowledge that, especially these days, is supposed to open up compassion for other people who don't right. have that privilege. But the flip side to that is it can remove all compassion because pain can exist within wealth and privilege in every other Absolutely. place. And yeah. so I think that can keep some of the most privileged people from speaking. Because they've lost their yeah. seat at the pain table. Yeah. And I, I remember, I mean, it took me a long time because there, there was one thing where even though I went to this rehab and it was good, and I remember being there and I was the youngest kid there. And this was a transformative experience for me in a way. Um, and I remember finally I had the courage to share my pain. I, I was 17. And I was with people who had a lot of hard stuff in their life. And I remember the the therapist or the counselor, whatever it was at the time, looked at me and says, and said, um, is that all you're worried about? And wow. I tell you at that moment, I never that, said another word. No, in that, that group. that's crushing. Crushing the 17 year old. So that informs so much of my work later in my life. Right? Can we just, that, can we pause to give our listeners the opportunity to hear you well, and if somebody is speaking to you about what they're going through, the right response is never, here's how it's worse for other people. Yeah, absolutely. So in your mind, well, I knew a person who went through this, and it was a lot worse. Just shut up. Don't say it. Don't say yeah, it. Don't, don't, don't say it. And I, you know, I look back at that 17-year-old, and, and he, in that moment, he retreated back again, mm-hmm. right, and said, I can't, it's not, you know, my, my pain is not worthy of being seen or my pain, you know, somehow there must be something wrong with me. I must be weak. I must be mm-hmm. broken or flawed or somehow I'm supposed to not have this pain, but yeah. yet I'm in pain. Yes. And I'm hurting. And this, you know, I look back at that 17 year old. I just want to give him a hug because he's just like, you know, he's, he's, you know, and he doesn't have the maturity, mm-hmm. you know, the experience to, 
to under to understand uh, our our humanity, our our well mutualness, if that makes sense. Yeah, and this and it's an important transition into. Uh, I want to hear how you went from the therapist route to getting into all the addiction work that you got to. But I think part of that, because ultimately addiction, we're just trying to self-soothe and deal with these pains, yeah. mm-hmm. but that pain isn't objective, that pain is whatever a person experiences. So if a lady breaks a heel on Rodeo Drive with her $3,500 pumps, she could experience great pain over that. And that is not mm-hmm. necessarily worse than a kid in a third world no. country who's only eating once a day. And we would say, well, objectively, that's a way worse pain. Not necessarily, because pain is in the mind. It's not in the the belly or the shoe. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's our experience and being open to that and having compassion for that, no matter where that human being is coming from, that person is coming from, and just being there for that in, in that moment. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the transition where all of a sudden you're running off to these addiction things. Well, <laughs> so... You know, I, I started working in, you know, as, as you get a license in marriage and family therapy, you have to do your interning hours. And at one of the places that one of the nonprofits I worked at, they had a, at the time in California, they had a, the Prop 36 program. And it was do therapy in lieu of jail time. You know, you can do okay, therapy. Yeah. If, if you have, if you're, if you're coming in for a nonviolent offense, we don't want to put you in jail. Let's get you into a treatment program. So I worked at that program and I just really loved to do, I mean, I could relate. I, I understood it. I, I had enough experience of it to, to get it. I understood uh, the the pain. I understood the shame. I understood the fear of, of connecting to others that people won't understand. And uh, I brought that to my work and I, and I really loved doing it. And then um, the sex addiction piece kind of came out of when it, when I really got deep with a lot of these people, this was a lot of their secondary problems, you know, was around sexuality. And so I started getting training in that area as well. And then that also fit for me because I also grew up in a very religious family and there was a lot of shame around sexuality. So, you know, we don't do this work just because, it's uh, our professional goals, you know, it had a personal meaning to me as well. And so, um, you know, working through all of that was, was uh, part of it, you know, and doing That's, that. So I'm, I'm hearing you say that somewhere there was a, a seed planted where you started having a lot of compassion for people that didn't have a voice in that as well, didn't have a safe way to talk about it, that it would be preferable to be an alcoholic than to be uh, a sex addict. Still is for right. a lot of people. Yeah. So, yeah. So I that, think so. You so know, that kind of blossomed for you. And yeah, I, I think so. You know, um, so many in, in, in the work now that I, I do so many people come in and they'll have like 10 years of sobriety from maybe a substance and this area of their life life is, is still something that keeps them out of pain. Right. When we, when we're, we're sexual, we can use, use sex as a way to escape and avoid our, our, our pain. When we're in sexual arousal, we're not going to feel that. 
So understanding how that we can become addictive itself. And then we have so many rules in our society around sex and so much shame around sexuality that they, you know, that's a need even deeper, darker secret. Yet they're using sex as their primary way of coping. They've put away the substance. They've done all the work. They've done all the 12 step work. And yet this is kind of in the background. And so having a voice for that and having compassion for that and, um, you know, really working around that. I think the core thing is the shame that, you know. Tell me if if this fits. It may or may not. But as I'm listening to your story, I'm, I'm thinking of Haydn, the composer of the Surprise Symphony. I always loved the Surprise Symphony as a kid, had it on the record. And I loved Haydn because he was nothing like Beethoven or Mozart or Bach. He was he just worked his ass off and he got better and better and better and then wrote some amazing things. But he wasn't writing masterpieces when he was 15 years old. And right. I hear your story and I resonate with it a lot because I didn't have any big dramatic. I had a loving family, did the best they could. Mm-hmm. I loved my childhood. I felt yeah. very isolated, but just kind of moved on, did my thing you have a story full of God's fingerprints throughout as opposed to a testimony that's a here, here's the mic drop moment. Yeah. And then that launches you into it. And I think there's so many listeners that can hear podcasts with so many of those amazing transformation stories, but every transformation story has to become a big picture story. It, it has to yeah. go from the transformation the rest of their life. And for those people that have felt pain, struggled with self-soothing, but maybe don't think, I don't think I'm an addict, but yeah, I, right. I also think yeah. I'm, I'm coping with things in isolation without speaking and that it's incredibly encouraging to just see how this unfolded for you without needing a giant trauma to put you on a path of healing and growth. Everybody gets healing and growth if they want it. You don't have to be traumatized. Uh, oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't necessarily have to have that quote, you know, big, big T trauma, that big, like huge thing. You know, a lot of this is that trauma um, is more subtle. You know, I think for me, it was, I didn't, I, I couldn't reach out. You know, I don't think it was intentional on my parents. I think they really did the best they could with what they had and where they were and, and the time. But for me, that's that's how it manifested. And I had to have a lot of compassion for that because I would dismiss it as not important. Mm-hmm. I would dismiss that pain as not real or I shouldn't have it. And it wasn't until I embraced, like that was actually really hard for me. Mm-hmm. And being able to own that and and say it and and finding the people that could be around me and validate that for me too, you know, either finding other professionals that I could work with or my own therapy or my own group therapy. I mean, I've done all those things because I needed to do that. I needed to have that voice. And if, you know, I have a saying, we, we really heal through the eyes of others, right? Mm-hmm. We need other people in our lives to see our pain for us to, to heal it, to have it validated so that we can change our perspective around it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then that's where healing comes from i mean i think like you know what you're talking your your podcast is you're you're doing that right you're you're validating all of these other people and their pain and their hurt and you're letting them know it's okay 
It's okay mm-hmm. to be a human being. It's it's okay to have this pain. It's okay to be unsure. It's 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 okay. We've we've talked about it before, I think, on the podcast, but when I used to lead worship, the song Trading My Sorrows was very popular. Mm-hmm. And it it has the section that's taken straight from scripture. I'm pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. Uh and then it goes on to I'm blessed beyond the curse for his promise will endure and so on and so forth. And I remember when I was leading that song one day, I realized, wait, what the hell? There were four things listed, pressed but not crushed. Okay, I can feel pressed sometimes. Persecuted? No, nah, I really haven't been persecuted. Struck down? I've never been actually struck down. And the one they left out is I'm perplexed but not in despair. Like, the verse is literally saying, you're allowed to be confused. And it yep. doesn't have to turn into despair. There can still yeah. be hope. And I, yeah. I was really annoyed after that because that was like the most relevant thing that should have been sung in church to Christians where it's, okay, I'm confused right now. I feel in the dark. Yeah. And God's like, yes, you have permission. I'm not bothered by that. Be confused. Yeah. I like it, it, you know, it's amazing to have those kind of insightful moments when you all of a sudden like realize something. You're like, I just see this from a completely different light. Like, Oh my gosh, here, here it is. But absolutely, that's embracing our our humanity, uh, what it means to be alive, how we've been uh, created, um, how we evolved. However, you see that, right? Like it's it, what it's what it is to be be a human being, and it's so what okay. Do you, what do you think is the most helpful general transition? Obviously, this is going to be very specific to the way people are wired and what they've experienced. But the transition between I found a place to have this mirrored back to me, and my pain has been affirmed. This is real. It's okay that this was hard. It's okay that this hurts. And now that I have that piece, what do I do with it? Where do I go with it? Because I can't spend the rest of my life just telling this same story, looking for someone to affirm the pain. That's not going to be helpful for me. That's good medicine for a while, but it has an expiration date. I I think, you know, it, it starts with, with with having the the other person being able it starts with having the other person being able to do what we can't do for ourselves and then using that as a model to begin to do it for ourselves so we can see the difference Mm -hmm. and we can begin to bring that in and practice that and um i think over time that slowly changes where you can appreciate that. And, you know, and, and I would say, you know, throughout my life, which I've always been kind of amazed at now is that, you know, I think I've, I've been able to get through that trauma or whatever that piece, whatever it was. And um, somehow it'll come back or manifest in a different kind of way. But now having the tools to have that self-compassion I can look at it differently, you know, because as we grow and we change and we move through this life, um, we're, we're constantly changing. And so mm-hmm. these traumas can kind of come back in different kind of ways. Mm-hmm. And having um, those people around you that you can talk to about it mm-hmm. and get that feedback, you can get that nurturing and you can co- go and incorporate it into your own being, your own self. And it, 
I think it's a continuous process. I just, yeah, I, just okay. I don't feel done. So, <laughs> I feel so like let, I'm still going. I'm learning me, a lot about myself. Let me see if I can summarize what you said and tell me if this is accurate. I've got a pain. I need to say it out loud and I need somebody to respond with compassion and how they respond, which, which makes me think, man, I need to be careful how I speak in those moments to other people, Absolutely. how they respond becomes a kind of script that I can start to adopt in my own self-talk. So yeah. when those feelings come up, I have the words that they've gifted to me. Mm -hmm. As I start to self-talk differently in the moments where that pain comes up, it starts to change the story that's in my head, yeah. which changes my perception. When my perception yeah. changes, the feelings change because I'll always feel based on how I perceive these pieces of the story. And then I shouldn't be surprised when it sneakily comes around a back door and hits me in a funny way and I lose all of my language and I need somebody to give it to me again. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, Absolutely. I think I think that that's the way, that's been my experience in my life, and um, as we've walked through these things, um, you know, and the trials and tribulations. No matter what, even if you get, you know, you get through your traumas, life shows up anyway, and there's more pains to work on. There's more hurts. There's more losses because that's part of life. You know, we we lose things, and pain happens, and hardship happens. And so that's why we need community. We need others who can walk with us and and be there for us, and we can be there for them, and we can create that uh, positive, positive, caring, compassionate loop back and forth because we all need it, right? We're 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 social. We're, we we need this from each other. Is there a way that you help people in taking? what they receive from others and learning to do better self-talk? That's a good question. I, you know, I, I think, um, you know, when people come to me and they walk in, the first thing is, you, you know, showing up as another human being that um, can just be there for them. It's that relationship itself that does the work. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not any, well, I don't want to put technique completely out of the picture. I mean, there is concrete things that you can do, but I think fundamentally, if you really look at the core, it starts with the, those relationship. It starts with a compassionate relationship. And eventually we're going to need that, you know, especially in, in addiction where there's a lot of shame, right? Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of clients come to me and go, just give me the work. I'll do it. And then I'll come back to you. And then we'll talk. And I'm like, well, that's probably not going to work because you need me to to witness it. You know, you need me to be there. You, you need, or some, not me. I mean, maybe someone right. who can witness it for you. Well, You're that, not doing this on your that, own. That person is still looking for the silver bullet, right? Give me the one yeah. thing that's going to fix this that isn't about the journey. And then I'll be a good enough, you know, I'll, I'll be, I won't be a shameful human being anymore. And then I can show up. Right. I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta show up with your shame. You gotta show up with your self doubt. You gotta show up with your everything. And, and it takes a lot of courage to do that because we don't know how we're going to get received when we, we do it, you know, and, and maybe, you know, most of the time when we have shame, um, you know, like 
were completely unlovable. No one could really love us if they knew who we were completely. So we're not yeah. going to do it. We're not going to risk that. You know, no way. I'm not going to risk that to myself. Because right. I just may reject myself if I actually sit with myself. So you need, once again, you kind of need that person to, you need those other people who can kind of hold that space for you while you get enough of it to to do it yourself. And then you grow that Yeah, over it time. Take, it takes a while to feel safe being vulnerable. And I will be first in line to say, what are my options for learning vulnerability without any kind of vulnerability? I would like yeah. that path. <laughs> yeah, I know. Give it to me. That's way me way <laughs> easier. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It doesn't work though. I've tell me tried about it. your <laughs> tell me about your podcast. You're you're king of the podcast, is what what I got from Mr. Justin. Tell me about your podcast. What what do you do and what are you what's your goal? Why do you do it? I mean, oh, I only did this question. podcast. I wanted to hang out with Nate every week about 13 years ago, and it just keeps going on and on. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I, you know, I started the podcast because I thought it would be fun to interview people and do it. And I, and podcasts were cool and I thought, Oh, this would be cool. Let's just do it. And so I, I just started to interview people and inter other interview other professionals who work in the field, who have the leading research and treatment. I'm, I'm fascinated by how our brain works. I'm fascinated about why we do the things we do, why I do the things I do, why does my brain work this way and not that way? And so it was an opportunity to, I guess, kind of an excuse to get these people to, <laughs> to talk to me and do it. And I just kind of really fell in love with it. And one of the things as it's evolved that I, I love, I, I think I've seen, I think I've, I've done like, I'm over like 200 episodes at this point, 200 different interviews. And um, the one of the things that I just see is how universal our humanity is just across even all of these experts that, you know, have all this knowledge and insight and yet they're still just as human as the rest of us. You know, I would kind of put them on a pedestal and go, wow, this, this person, they, they must be, you know, they're, they're so smart. They're, they know so much. They must have it all together and realizing like, oh my God, we, we're all in this and we're all in the same boat. And much of their work is inspired by their, their hurt and their pain. Mm-hmm. You know, why they become experts in these areas is because most of the time they had that pain and they were trying to find a way to solve it. So, um, I love doing it. And, and so I just keep doing it, <laughs> you know? So how do people connect with that or other stuff that you're involved in? Give us, give us the ways that they can get in the Dwayne world. Well, I think the easiest is just go to the and you can check me out there and, and look at the podcast and look at all the different guests that, that, uh, I bring on and, and talk to all the, you know, listen to all the different experts. I think it's the best way to get a hold of me. I love, I'm thinking of an interview. Uh, they're all out of order at this point with how they're being posted. So I don't know where it's going to fall, but interviewing a very bombastic guest who I related to, because I can be slightly bombastic myself. Uh-huh. And I just love when I meet someone who's just like, you have very gentle, like spirit about you. And I'm like, oh, there's another way to live. I should try to, <laughs> I should try to shoot for a little more calm and gentle from time to time. Uh, uh, but I, I imagine that makes you an incredible listener. 
So yeah. I had I had had one other thought, and you know, you just said where people should go. That's supposed to be the end of the interview, but I, I want to give a special shout out to all the assholes out there like me. We're talking about gifting people with good words when you're listening. Yeah. And if you are a natural bombastic asshole, then usually the go-to is a loud or inspirational or confrontational shot in the arm for this person. What would you, being a, a wise and sensitive soul, give as some advice for all of our asshole friends who are listening? And I'm listening. Oh, gee, that's a good one. You know what I, I would say is there, yeah, there is a place for that. And, and some of that is really important and we, and we need, need to be able to hear it. But what I would also say is mixing that just with that compassion, you know, saying, I get it and you need to get your stuff together. You know, you need, you need to, you need to do this. Like this is, this is, you know, um, get your, get your stuff together and you can be direct and you can also go, I also get your pain and I see it. How do I know if I'm feeling compassion or just inspired to help a person change? I think if you can look at that person and you can know their experience in a certain way, if that makes sense, and you just connect with their experience for that moment, then, then you can, you can offer that compassion. It's that deep kind of empathy where you can look at someone and you can, you can know them on a, on a deeper level and and you see it and you feel it in your, in your, in your gut. But I also think that takes, um, it's a skill that we can learn as, as we work on our own stuff. You know, as we work to be compassionate to ourselves, we're going to be able to be compassionate to others. And, and then we can mix that other, your personality that mm-hmm. if you want to call it that asshole personality, I, I don't, I don't see that in you, but maybe, maybe <laughs> I don't know you that well, but maybe it's there. Uh, give, me that inspiration, <laughs> <laughs> give me some time. That inspirational piece. And you can mix those together. And I think can be completely powerful. So is it fair that I should be able to ask a question while I'm listening to someone do, am I feeling pain as they speak of their pain? And if I don't know that I am, or if it's not hitting me in the gut with, ouch, this hurts even hearing this, that I probably need to take a pause. That's a good, I, I think that's a good, a good, a good, a good way to look at it. If I'm like, wait a minute, let me slow down here and let me just pay attention a little bit more. Maybe I need to ask a few more questions and yeah, re- reflect and then, a little more. Yeah. And then sit with them a little bit longer, you know, um, I would say, you know, look, look at their eyes. You, you, you can see it. You can see, you know, as human beings, our eyes communicate so much about our inner, inner world. And when we can look at someone in the eyes, we, we can see it and we can connect with them through that. Nice. You know? Well, and I'll s- take that as a helpful tip for the bombastic loud people of the world. You're welcome. We need brothers all of us, and sisters. <laughs> <laughs> we need all of us, you know, well, Sometimes thanks. I need a little bit of that and I, sometimes, you know, it's a back and I, forth. 
I agree. And sometimes we draw it out of each other. I'm yeah, probably absolutely. less bombastic today because you're just so chill and like hanging out. So that makes that draws me into your world. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. the time. I appreciate the conversation. I know we could have gone in a lot of different directions and we planned no particular direction, but I sure no. loved getting to hear your story and your journey. The Haydn of the therapists. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Well, listeners, we, you know what? I'm going to close this here because Nate is on his way to Italy, I believe, right now. So, man, I don't know when we're going to do a bumper. So, we're just going to call that good for this episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. If you have questions or comments, want to tell us a good joke, uh, send that to Pirate Monk Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, I guess that's it. So, I'm Aaron, and this is. Dwayne. And we are your pals here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Thanks, everybody. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com. <laughs>